Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. One of the biggest consensus uh, trades heading into next year is betting on reflation, a steepening in the yield curve, this concept of perhaps better than expected earnings coming out of companies that have pretty weak comps to, to beat, basically. Joining us now is Ben Emmons, Medley Global Advisors, Global Macro Strategy. Uh, and Ben, I'm looking right now at what might be the initial phases. I don't want to say the death of the reflation trade, but the death of the inflation trade. You're seeing the yield curve continue to uh, flatten and you're seeing a measure of forward inflation, five-year, five-year uh, break-even rates drop near their lowest levels since 2016. What do you make of that? Uh, good morning, Lisa. Thanks very much for having us. Um, well, there's obviously uncertainty has creeped in since the speech from Trump in New York last week when he started to voice his word about substantial rise in tariffs as the deal doesn't happen. So I think the bond market listened to that closely and saw like, Okay, you know, there's always a risk that there will be no deal or will be delayed. And then people are looking at these December 15 tariffs as the first one of the substantial rise. I think this is what's in the market's mind right now, that that risk isn't totally abated yet, right? You know, the real reflationary trades you spoke about that happened in sort of mid-October was on the idea that the, the tariffs would be de-escalated. So that's now been taken a little bit back. At least the market seems to be cautious that, that the, that a de-escalation may not happen so quickly. So therefore, I think this is why the yield curve flattened. In addition to that, what we have had in the meantime is really soft inflation data. Right, whether you looked at PPI data, for example, out in Germany today, or import price index last week in the U.S., all shows very global disinflationary pressure from the trade wars. I think that too presses down on the yield curve, why you get this flattening. So, Ben, if we do get a phase one type of deal on schedule as we head into 2020, would you want to be, you know, more exposure to the U.S. or maybe have a little bit more of a global exposure? How do you view that? Yeah, I'm definitely on that idea, Paul, because, um, you know, if you look at the performance, then, yes, the U.S. has outperformed this uh, mostly this entire time in the trade war. Right? And the, the areas that have been affected most by the trade war are in Asia, Pacific and Europe. And so there is, of course, a valuation difference there that, that you would presume that if the phase one deal happens and there's some confidence coming back that trade, and particularly global trade, which seems to be pretty depressed at this point, take, for example, the export-import data from Japan overnight is a good, good indicator of that, and that could see be some, some rebound there. And I think then countries that are very sensitive to global trade are going to benefit from that. I think there's where the value is as opposed to the U.S. stock market, which well, could continue to perform, but maybe not as much as relative to those you know, undervalued markets, if, if, you, if you will. Right? Like, so I think that is probably the trade next year, of course, conditioned upon that this phase one deal successfully gets completed. One thing I'm struggling to understand, yesterday at around, I don't know, 6.15 p.m. Uh, Eastern time, Wall Street time, there was the headline about the Hong Kong bill that was passed by the Senate. And right. this is basically uh, saying that the U.S. stands in alliance with the Hong Kong protesters uh, in asserting freedom and pushing back against Beijing. Beijing has come out uh, vehemently against this. There was concern that this would impede or torpedo any potential for a phase one trade deal. Come now, uh, you know, several hours later, people are not even thinking 
thinking about it or talking about it. It's been largely dismissed as noise and being sort of symbolic more than anything else, not leading to any serious disruption. What's the right narrative here? Well, I think that is the right narrative, uh, Lisa, that, that yes, it's an important um, signal by the Senate, of course, to take a stance on pro-democracy right, in, in Hong Kong. And that's, and that is, I think, well-known out there, and I think markets understand that. But the link between that bill and the progress in the trade talks, uh, that may be not so strong. And, and probably the reason really is, is that the retaliation that China talks about um, may not just necessarily happen so quickly. Right? I think one of the, uh, the news items that came out this morning is actually making the comparison to other measures that the U.S. has threatened with or, or even done, like the Huawei case, that, that China has not retaliated uh, on those situations either. So I think this is probably what's creeping into the market's mind of that this is an important bill and it matters, but it may not matter as much for the trade deal from here. What more matters is, of course, ultimately the agreement on what is the tariff rollback going to be about and what is the, the agricultural, agricultural purchases going to be about uh, to make this deal actually happen. In other words, will the deal phase one be really the 60% that Trump talks about or will it be less than 60%? I think that's ultimately where the market will trade on. If it is a lot less than 60%, I think then you get more uncertainty about the future of the trade deal that, you know, phase two. So, Ben, if we do, again, I'm operating on the assumption that maybe we do get a phase one deal on schedule. Is that my signal to maybe to dip my toe into emerging markets? Yeah, I mean, that is, I think, the general consensus out there that, again, where's the value at the moment if you compare the U.S. to other markets, right? And that, and that is indeed Asia-Pacific or Europe and, and some parts of emerging markets. That's, that's, I think, the catalyst that people feel confident that if phase one is completed, it's in writing, we really have a base where we can work off the more structural issues over the long term. And what most of all that matters is that people probably discount that there will be a level of de-escalation from the tariffs that have been put in place over course in time next year into, into 2021. That would have an economic impact, right? and that, I think, is why investors are pre-positioning themselves on that phase one completes. Uh, there's opportunity in, in these undervalued markets, so to speak. Ben Emmons, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Ben is uh, Medley Global Advisors, global macro strategist, giving us some thoughts on kind of how this could play out. Trade still very much front and center for investors. And the question is, I have probably is, you know, it seems like the consensus is a phase one deal is coming. Uh, is there downside if it doesn't come? You know, and what is that downside? And trying to, uh, you know, trying to put a handle on that. But there's certainly some uh, arguments for taking on a little bit more risk. Uh, should we get that phase one deal? What a year 2019 has been for equity markets, double digit increases across the S&P, the Dow and NASDAQ. Where do we go in 2020? Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Investors, I'm sure has some answers. Phil, thanks so much for joining us. You know, one of the discussions we have, you know, almost daily here is this is kind of the bull market that nobody really loves or trusts. What is your sense of the market here, given where we are at, you know, close to 28,000 on the Dow? No one loves or trusts it. This is the most hated bull market in the history of civilization. That, there you that, go. <laughs> remember that, that a, a year ago, at, at, at after that 20% uh, 
waterfall decline that we saw that, that ended on Christmas Eve, uh, because the market was pricing in with absolute certainty the fact that recession had either started or was about to start. Stocks were trading at 14 times earnings. We had a very different view, that, that we did not believe that there was any near-term risk of recession in 2018 or 2019 or 2020. We still believe that. Multiples at 14 times forward earnings, in our view, were way too pessimistic because you had very benign levels of both interest rates and inflation. Core inflation, the PCE, sitting at 1.7% right now. Yeah. So the multiple at 18 times earnings, where it was a year ago October, was exactly where it should have been. And our view this year is that we would spend the year sort of grinding our way back to that level. So we're probably at around, I don't know, 17, 17 and a half times earnings right now. We're not quite there yet. But we have hit our 3,100 full-year forecast you, have. Um, you know, six weeks before the end of the year. Indeed. So what drives things higher here? Um, the consolidation that we saw in corporate earnings this year was, was absolutely understandable because we were up 25% in calendar 2018. That, that's not sustainable. So we're going to get back onto a growth trajectory for earnings next year, Lisa. We think maybe something in the 8% neighborhood, give or take. We're going to get a little bit more multiple expansion because inflation and interest rates are still relatively benign. So if we do $180 in earnings next year, which is our forecast, and, and we get a multiple that's in that 18, 18 and a half times earnings neighborhood, we get to our 3500 forecast on the S&P 500. Now, we're sitting at 3,100 now. That's not a huge move, but like you said at the very beginning, Paul, we're, we're up, you know, 32% or something like that in the last year. Yeah. And, and uh, if we can do another 10 or 15% next year, that ain't bad. That ain't bad, uh, indeed. I, I'm trying to figure out, though, what the leader is going to be here, because it's really been tech driving a lot of the gains that we've seen and, in and 2019. It continue to be tech. Okay. So there, understand what's going on. As a result of, of the reduction in tax rates, the repatriation of $2.7 trillion back into the United States, and we've, we've only brought a trillion dollars of it back so far, and the automatic expensing of CapEx, we are going through, in my opinion, one of the most significant technology upgrade cycles we've seen since the Y2K buildup back in the late 90s. That, that trend ought to continue through at least the end of next year. So you look at you say, well, tech's had a pretty good year the last year or two. They should have had a good year, and we should have another good year as companies continue to you know, upgrade their software and whatever else they're doing in order to fix up their, their technology platforms. So, Phil, you've been absolutely on it, uh, on this equity call, this bullish call here. Where could you be wrong in your 3,500 call here? Well, I, I think there's a very significant uh, swing factor here, and that's the results of the presidential election in, in 2020. I mean, our base case is that we get good election results that allow the market-friendly, economic-friendly, investor-friendly fiscal policies that we've seen the last couple of years to continue. But that could be wrong. We, we could have a very radically different set of fiscal policies uh, waking up to in calendar 21, and, and the market as a forward-looking discounting mechanism is going to price that in early based upon polling or based upon the, the actual election results in November of next year, 
if, if it looks as if there's going to be a radically different change in, in fiscal policy approach and therefore economic growth, corporate earnings growth, and everything else. Phil Orlando, thank you so much uh, for that. Phil Orlando is Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated Investors. Always wonderful uh, insights. Interesting to think that tech will continue to uh, drive the market toward that 3,500 uh, goal for the S&P 500. And 10 to 15%, that ain't bad. He's been right. He's been right. Let's shift gears a little bit to healthcare and what some people are calling a drug shortage, which is incredibly ironic considering the focus on the cost of certain drugs exactly. uh, catering to specific niche diseases. Michael Alkire joining us here in our Interactive Broker Studios, president of Premier Inc., a healthcare uh, management company. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, what is this shortage all about? Yeah, thank you for having me first. Um, first of all, <clears throat> the drug shortages pertain to a certain part of the pharmacy market. So it's, it re, it's related to generic drugs. So as you are well aware in the sort of the evolution of a drug, a drug comes out, typically it's a branded, and then um, after a number of years, uh, that drug goes to a generic status. Uh, what happens then is obviously the price goes down, and I'll just use an analogy, it starts at 100 bucks, it sometimes ends up at two bucks. Along the way, you have various producers of that product that have to exit the market because they can't make margin. So some may have high cost and at 50 bucks a share they exit, some have to exit at 20 and then you know when the market sort of settles out, you may only have one or two suppliers. When you have a, either a monopoly or a duopoly, that's when obviously drug prices actually go back up. Uh, and then our job, at Premier is to figure out ways to create healthy markets. So the focus of a company that we just launched called Provide GX is to bring new entrants into the market when you have a monopoly or a duopoly. So we'll actually invest capital in new companies that we think have uh, a history of high quality manufacturing to create a healthier market, healthier supply. So what are some of the drugs or treatments that are experiencing shortages now? Yeah, it's pretty crazy because uh, there's some just basic stuff that our healthcare systems need that will be uh, in a shortage situation at any point in time. Think of saline solutions. So those are the, those are the, the therapies that are being utilized by IVs. Uh, think of nutritionals, just basic nutritionals. If you're in the hospital for a longer term stay and you need nutritionals, you know, those are drugs that uh, oftentimes are in short supply. Things like morphine have been on the shortage list. Propofol, that's the drug that allows you to go under anesthetic. That has been under a, a shortage. Uh, there was a, a, a very, very important drug that focused on um, toxic shock. Uh, and there was a JAMA article written in 2017 um, and because we didn't have access to this drug, the JAMA article sort of proved out that uh, it increased mortality because we didn't have that drug by 3.7% during the time that that drug was in a, a shortage situation. Uh, and it was a, a, a norepinephrine, so it was an, a, a, the epinephrine family. So it really helped to sort of treat low blood pressure when your body entered into shock. So we think there was about $13 billion of costs associated with that. 
All right, so going forward, I'm trying to just understand from a big picture standpoint, what can be done to put the emphasis on creating more and affordable generic drugs at a time when the pharmaceutical companies in large part are focused on the cancer drugs that are uh, sort of hot and they're and they're very they can be priced at very high points but don't necessarily take care of this need so great question so what we want to do uh, and again through um, that company I mentioned, Provide GX, we want to actually go out to smaller manufacturers who are actually are in the market to produce drugs today uh, and help them expand either their production or help them get additional ANDAs, which is the approval from the, S the uh, FDA to actually, uh, to actually manufacture the drug. So that's number one. Number two, and this is something that keeps me up at night, is we have issues with the active pharmaceutical ingredient. That's the raw goods that go into manufacturing these generic drugs. Um, little known fact, 80% of these raw goods for generic drugs are actually done in China, manufactured in China, 80%. So what keeps me up at night is the ability of potentially China to weaponize you know, this, this imbalance sort of in the supply chain. So think of APIs for uh, antibiotics, think of things around um, cancer drugs, uh, things around um, acid reflux, just basic drugs that our population needs. I do worry about having such a dependence on that raw material being produced in one country. Michael Alcower, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you coming in. Michael's the president of Premier Healthcare Company. Talk about healthcare shortages, uh, which are more pronounced than I probably would have guessed. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.